Well, good morning. Let me offer my sincerest thanks to Pastor Justin and the elders here at Grace Church Ovilla. I count it a great privilege not only to open up God's word with you this morning, but also to be trusted to do so in the middle of a sermon series. So we didn't mention this beforehand, but I've been serving as a pastor at a church in North Kansas City for the past five years, and, um, and I have missed uh, preaching in sermon series. It's just a different kind of feel, uh, preaching a sermon series as opposed to preaching a standalone sermon. And so when, when he asked me, this was spectacular news for me, because although I've had the joy in the past couple of months of preaching to many churches, I've had to cycle through the exact same three support-raising missions sermons, and they're all the first time for everybody that I'm preaching to, but not for me. And so I was beginning to kind of drive myself a little crazy. And so when, when Justin asked if I'd be willing to simply preach the next text in your sermon series, uh, a series that, that my church just finished uh, a year and a half ago, um, I could not refuse. So I'll tell you, friends, it's not a small thing to share the pulpit with an outsider, and especially when that outsider is trusted with a text in an ongoing series, and what a text. I almost felt compelled to, to double-check with Justin, like, are you sure uh, that you want me to have this text? This is the kind of text that me and my fellow elders would fight over when we're putting a sermon series together. Uh, I want that text, so, but I didn't want to jinx it, so here we are. This passage is unique in that it is like a hammer that drives the nail of so much truth we find in other portions of this book into our hearts at the existential level, at the personal level. So think about where you all have been in this book so far. Since chapter 3, verse 21, Paul has been concerned with describing salvation broadly and justification more narrowly. He's describing the mechanics of it. Justification being that legal declaration by God that we are not guilty and righteous. So in chapter 3, verses 21 through 26, Paul describes the objective reality of this redemption that Christ accomplished. He says that justification of sinners is made possible by you remember this word? Propitiation. There's that big $5 Bible word for you. Propitiation. That's that big word that Paul introduced in chapter 3, verse 25, which describes how Christ's death on the cross satisfies the wrath of God, paying the penalty of sin. The wages of sin is death, and Christ pays that wage on the cross. And then, that next portion from chapter Three verses 27 through the rest of chapter 4, Paul describes the mechanics of how this redemption that Christ accomplished in the gospel is, is appropriated or applied personally, and that is through faith. So he's describing the mechanics of it. In the next section of Romans, the rest of chapter 5, Paul's going to continue extrapolating on the mechanics of justification when he develops these concepts of imputation and federal headship. This is a preview of where you'll be then. That in Adam, we all die. 
by virtue of the imputation of sin and his fallen nature. But in Christ, we live by virtue of the imputation of Christ and his righteousness, which is all to say so much of this large portion of the book of Romans is describing justification in objective terms. Paul's describing how justification works, how Christ accomplishes it, how it is received by faith and not obedience to the law, etc. But in this passage, Paul takes a personal and existential term. In this passage, Paul wants, so in other passages, Paul wants us to know certain things about justification. But in this passage, Paul wants us to feel a certain way about justification. He wants us to experience a draw, drop, jaw-dropping gratitude and hope when we think of the word justification. What do you think of when you hear that word justification? Now, I don't know most of you here, but I've been a pastor long enough to know that many of us this morning find ourselves in very needy places. We are needy. Maybe we are confronted with a difficult decision and find ourselves in need of clarity. Maybe we find ourselves in hidden sin and we need to confess and repent of it. Maybe we find ourselves at the end of our rope and we think we need a plan to sort of get our lives put back together. I know that these realities are present in this congregation without knowing this congregation because this congregation is made up of sinners and sufferers. And in the face of sinners and sufferers, pastors often feel the need to sort of conjure up some kind of advice some kind of pastoral charge to get you out of the rut that you find yourself in. But listen, I I trust, I trust that the Lord brought you here today providentially with all of the baggage that you brought into this room so that you could hear a sermon from a text that has absolutely no imperatives, no commands, no charges, no do just a declaration of the countless riches for those of us who are in the Lord Jesus Christ. If there is a charge in this passage, it is simply this, behold Christ, revel in who he is and what he has done for you. So we're going to cast all of our bets on the sufficiency of Christ's glory this morning. Whatever else we need, we're going to believe him in his wisdom, and trust that our greatest need is an eye full of the glory of Jesus. And so the invitation for you is for you to come with all of your exhaustion and troubles and victories and yearnings to come into the presence of Christ and let the brightness of his glory cascade on you, to be dwarfed by his bigness, to be drowned by the grace of God, which he lavishes upon us. So let's do that. Let's follow Paul's thinking and allow for him to instruct us on how we should feel about this word justification. Romans chapter five, verse one. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul begins this verse with therefore, which should always hearken us back to what he had just said in the previous passage. 
having just explained how justification by faith alone is a staple in God's saving economy, going all the way back to Abraham. Remember, Father Abraham had many sons, and if you're in Christ Jesus, you are one of them, right? He was justified by faith before circumcision. Paul punctuates the importance of Christ's, of Christ's resurrection in this whole schema. That's how he concludes chapter four, verse 25. He says that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And we should remember, friends, that without the resurrection of Christ from the dead, there is no justification. How do we know that Christ being delivered up is sufficient to account for our trespasses? How do we know that his life and death provide a justification that we can bank on and receive by faith? And the answer is the resurrection. The resurrection of Christ Jesus from the dead is God's yes to that question, is it all enough? I mean, think about this, friends. For three days, while Christ was in the grave, the cosmos held its breath. Has sin been atoned for? Has righteousness to be received by faith, has that righteousness been achieved? And yes, says the Holy Trinity, as Christ walked out of the grave. Now, if this is true, what are the implications? This is what Paul answers in verse one, when he says, therefore, therefore, since we have been justified, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The implication is that we have peace with God. Now, when we think about being at peace with somebody, we probably have a lower standard than what we should think about when we read this verse in particular. For our fallen and sinful relationships, the absence of active hostility is plenty enough to constitute as peace, right? I'm at peace with this person, which means we're not at each other's throats. That's enough. But that is not what this verse is talking about when it says that we have peace with God. To be sure, this is included in what it means that we have peace with God. The animosity that existed before our conversion isn't there anymore. We don't hate God anymore, and the wrath of God is no longer an impending doom. But Paul means to say so much more than that when he says that we have peace with God. He's describing an intimacy here that we cannot underestimate. He's not describing amicable respect and handshaking. Think instead in terms of hugs. Think instead in terms of adoption into a family, receiving a new name, receiving an inheritance. It means God rejoicing over you with loud singing. That's what peace with God through Christ means. In Christ, there is nothing standing between us and God anymore. No necessary tension that would incline us to hesitate from coming into his presence with affective eagerness. And this will be made clear as we continue on in this passage. Verse two, through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now think about what this passage says about the grace that we receive in Christ through faith. It's something we stand on. It's something we stand in. You should be thinking in terms of security and solidity 
This is in contrast to our fickle emotions that are like waves in the ocean. They're, co- they're constantly coming and going, unstable. But this grace is a grace that we stand in. In Christ, we stand on the sturdy ground of grace. It's something we are secure in, regardless of how we feel about it. I'm reminded of John 10 when Christ describes himself as the door into the sheep pen. He is the access point into all safety and protection and vitality. In Christ, we are standing on rock solid grace and standing there, standing on this sturdy ground, justified in Christ, swimming in grace, Paul says that we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Standing in grace, our eyes are set toward glory. They're set toward the beatific vision, what theologians called it. This uninterrupted experience of God's glorious presence when he makes all things new and our communion with him is consummated and perfected. I love how C.S. Lewis imagines this appearing of glory in his Narnian classic, The Last Battle. This is the last book of his Narnia series. A repeated refrain throughout the final chapters of this book is further up, further in, as the heroes of the story enter through the stable door into heaven and they go further up and further into Aslan's country. This is what one of the characters says about it. Listen, Peter, when Aslan said you could never go back to Narnia, he meant the Narnia you were thinking of. But that was not the real Narnia. That had a beginning and an end. It was only a shadow or a copy of the real Narnia, which always has been here and always will be here. Just as our own world, England and all, is only a shadow or a copy of something in Aslan's real world. You need not mourn over Narnia, Lucy. All the old Narnia that mattered, all of the dear creatures have been drawn into the real Narnia through the door. And of course it is different. As different as a real thing is from a shadow or as a waking life from a dream. This is a dream compared to the glory that awaits us. Lewis goes on to describe a conversation that the heroes have with the lion Aslan, this Christ figure in these books. And he says this, as he, that is Aslan, as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, This is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after, but for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover story and the title, the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. That's the hope of glory of God. The consummated, further up, further in, communion with God forever in which every chapter is better than the one before. And Paul says, we rejoice in this hope, this hope of glory. We're doing it right now. Some of you are saying, amen. We are rejoicing in the hope of this glory. Why? Why do we rejoice in hope? Why do we rejoice in hope? Because it's not the kind of hope that sits on pins and needles, dreading the potential absence of the thing that we long for. It's not that kind of hope. 
No, friends, remember, we are standing in rock-solid grace through Christ. This hope is anticipatory. Christ is raised from the dead. The outcome of this hope is sure. We love to experience this kind of hope. That's why we rejoice in it. It's a holy kind of discontentment. This is what C.S. Lewis elsewhere calls the stab of joy. It's a satisfying hunger. Isn't that a paradox? It's a hunger that satisfies. We long for what we love, and we love the longing itself. Now, what does this kind of hope for glory do right now? What does that hope do for us right now? What kind of people does it produce? Answer, it produces the kind of people who do not merely rejoice in spite of their present suffering, but rather who rejoice in suffering. Look at verse three with me. Not only that, not only do we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that our suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Rejoicing in the hope of future glory produces joy in our present suffering. Now, this is not to trivialize our present suffering. Our present suffering, the suffering that we experience in this life, is significant. And the hope of glory of God does not minimize or eradicate that suffering it actually does something far more scandalous and far more radical without taking away any of the severity or intensity of our suffering, hope of glory that comes from faith in Christ actually transforms our suffering. It turns an agent of destruction into an agent of good. It sanctifies us. It does something good in us. Suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. In a similar passage, Paul describes this process in this way. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light And momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Again, we may be tempted when we read things like that, we may be tempted to feel like Paul is trivializing our suffering. Because in the moment, our suffering certainly does not feel light and momentary, does it? It feels heavy and everlasting. The point is not to say that your suffering is not that big of a deal. The point is that it is rendered light and momentary only in comparison to the weight of glory that it is producing. If our suffering, which is unbelievably great, is rendered light and momentary by comparison to the weight of glory that, is, that it is preparing us for, how great then is that glory? And listen, Paul does not say this light and momentary affliction may produce an eternal weight of glory provided you do this or that. That suffering may produce endurance 
Endurance may produce character. He doesn't say that. He says, suffering, this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Bank on it. Listen, Christian, your suffering is not wasted. If you're a Christian, you have never experienced a millisecond of wasted suffering. God has stolen it from the hands of Satan, sin, and death, and has transformed it into an agent for your sanctification. How does this happen? How does God create within us a heart that actually rejoices in suffering? How does he do that? How does he, how does he create in us the kind of people whose hope of future glory can transform our present suffering? The answer is, he does that personally and directly in the person of the Holy Spirit. Look with me at the rest of verse five. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Don't you just love that language? Poured. He has poured his love into us. God doesn't trickle his love into our hearts. He pours it. Now, friends, I cannot begin to describe to you how deep this verse is. B of verse five, (laughs) how deep it is. The depth of this verse is in point of fact infinite because we're talking about the love that God pours into our hearts through the Holy Spirit and it is his love, the infinite one. It's his love we're talking about. The infinite love of the Holy Trinity has been poured into our hearts. We're coming right now to the limitation of human language. How is this possible? How is it possible that the love of the infinite God can be poured into finite hearts without us exploding or something like that? Isn't it far more likely that we are swallowed up into his love than that his love can be poured into our hearts? And of course, there is a sense in which that is very true. The hope of glory of God that we rejoice in is the hope of being forever enveloped in the love of God. This is why Jonathan Edwards calls heaven the world of love. So there is a sense in which we're looking to be enveloped in the love of God. So how can we say that this infinite ocean that is God's love is somehow poured into our hearts. And the answer lies in the fact that we have been filled with the Holy Spirit when we were born again. He's not limited to us. So think about a a little thimble in the ocean. Is the ocean in the thimble? Yes. (laughs) Is the thimble in the ocean? Yes. It's kind of like that. When we received the Holy Spirit, we were receiving God's infinite love poured into our hearts. Now, it's fitting for Paul to associate this receiving of God's love with receiving the Spirit because all throughout the scriptures and all throughout the church's history, the Holy Spirit has been described and associated in a profound way with divine love. In fact, when we contemplate the inner life of the Holy Trinity, who God is in himself. It's not wrong for us to understand the Holy Trinity as the procession of divine love. The Spirit is the Father's love for the Son and the Son's love for the Father, which never began 
and never will cease, but is eternal and boundless and infinite. St. Augustine on this verse says this, that God may be loved, the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts, not by the free choice whose spring is in ourselves, but through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. Okay, if I've lost you, this is where you come back to me right now. (laughs) Our love for God is God's love for God shared with us. That's incredible. The love of God has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Now remember, Paul wants us in this passage to feel a particular way about justification. He's trying to drive home how unbelievably gracious God is and how unbelievably we are enriched in Christ by justification. He's just done that when he's described what the hope of the glory of God does for us to transform our suffering, when he's described the love of God having been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And now he's going to punctuate the point by contrasting Christ's contribution to our salvation with ours. Notice in this next section as we continue to read, I want you to see the contrast, how he describes us over and against how he describes Christ. What's our contribution versus what's his contribution? Verse six, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. On our worst day, Christ died for us. Not our best, at our lowest, at our most ugly, Christ died for us. Consider, friends, who did Christ die for? Did he die for adorable, endearing little sweethearts? No, he died for sinners, ugly and deformed by sin and depravity, grotesquely disfigured by our own sin-sick hearts, ever refusing the waters of life, to drink from muddy and broken cisterns of sin, ever refusing the fullness of joy and the pleasures forevermore at the right hand of God and preferring instead to drink the salt water of self-destructive and never satisfying sinful gratification, ever refusing to dine with lady wisdom to receive rich food and wine and preferring instead stolen bread and water that turns the stomach. Does that look like a good trade-off to you? The life of the perfect, sinless, all-holy, ever-innocent, lovely, and admirable Son of God in exchange for who? Traitors and cheaters and rebels and ingrates and liars. Friends, this is the scandal of our forgiveness, the scandal of the forgiveness of our sins. You However bad you think you are, you are still seeing your sin only imperfectly. However bad you think you are apart from Christ, you are incomparably worse. Isn't that great? (laughs) Because how great then is the love of Christ? 
Verse nine, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Justification is ours because of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for us. This is the legal declaration that by virtue of our union with Christ by faith, there is no wrath for us because Christ has received all the wrath that we deserve. But not only that, we are not merely brought to a point of having hostility cease between us and God. Remember, our peace goes deeper than that. We are reconciled, and this can happen not only because, Christ, because of Christ's death, but also because of Christ's life. You see, it's not just that Christ's death is ours by faith, and we are no longer owed wrath. It is also that Christ's life is ours through faith, and in him, we are owed life and peace and reconciliation. And this all gets at a very important distinction that theologians have made throughout the centuries and have articulated as the distinction between Christ's passive obedience and Christ's active obedience. You see, Christ's passive obedience refers to his obedient suffering the consequences of our breach of God's law. It refers to his life of suffering under the curse of a fallen world that culminates ultimately in his death on the cross. That's typically how we, what we think of when we think about justification, when we think about forgiveness and our salvation in Christ. And that is very important. And it's because, it's very important because our sins puts us in debt, a debt that only the wages of an eternal death could pay. And so Christ paid that debt for us. But while salvation may not be less than the forgiveness of sins, it is certainly more than that. It's more than just the forgiveness of sins. Justification is not only the declaration that we are no longer guilty. Eternal life positively requires righteousness. Therefore, justification is not only the legal declaration that we are no longer guilty, it is also the legal declaration that we are made righteous. How is this possible? It's possible because of Christ's life. So this is his active obedience. Not only did Christ passively obey by bearing up under the consequences of breaking God's law, he also actively obeys by perfectly keeping that law. And both aspects of his obedience are ours in Christ. Isn't that wonderful? By faith, we have access to Christ, who is our payment for sin and our merit for eternal life. We die in Christ for the sins that we transgressed. His death is our death. And we live in Christ eternally because of the life that he lives. His life is our life. And this gets at why Paul could say that our justified standing in Christ can provide a hope that does not put us to shame. Remember that in verse five? This kind of hope does not put us to shame. Now shame is a popular word today. Sometimes you'll see preachers almost even substitute the word 
sin for shame, as if the main problem in this world is shame. The antithesis to a whole and godly life is a life free of shame. And our world does this too, by the way. Our world kind of describes the situation in this way. Shame is the worst thing ever in the estimation of our world. And so if shame is the central problem, shamelessness is the answer. So, hey, you do you. No shame. No shame. But that's not exactly true. Because sometimes shame is useful. (laughs) Paul actually appeals to shame at various points in his letters. Not all shame is wrong. Shame sometimes is the rightful corresponding emotion to shameful acts, shameful sins. But undue shame is a horrible thing. Shame that persists wrongly is not good. That's the kind of shame that Paul does not want us to experience. This would include things like shame for sins that are committed against you. You should not feel shame for a sin that is committed against you. But this would also include things like shame for sins that have been confessed and repented of and forgiven by Christ. We should not experience ongoing shame for that. To wallow, to continue wallowing in shame for sin that we've confessed and repented of and which Christ has forgiven is actually dishonoring to him. It may feel pious, but it's not. It's dishonoring to God. It cheapens the blood of Christ. It essentially says that Christ's atonement is not sufficient. Christ's atonement needs to be supplemented with some wallowing shame. So the opposite of shame is not shamelessness. The opposite of shame is a humble gratitude for forgiveness. Now, it's easy for me to say that in the abstract. Hey, let go of shame for sins that Christ has atoned for and cleansed you of. Just let go of it. It's it's easy for me to say that in the abstract. It's a lot easier said than done, isn't it? I've recently read Shakespeare's tragedy Hamlet for the very first time. And was reminded by the power of shame in one scene with the king of Denmark, Claudius. Now, I won't give away too much of the story, but you need to know that Claudius is Hamlet's uncle and that he was made king after conspiring against and murdering Hamlet's father, who was the rightful king of Denmark. And so Claudius has blood guilt on his hands. And in one scene, Claudius is struck with the shame of his guilt, and he says this, Oh, my offense is rank. It smells to heaven. It hath the primal eldest curse upon it, a brother's murder. Pray can I not. Pray can I not. Though inclination be as sharp as will, my stronger guilt defeats my strong intent, and like a man to double business bound, I stand and pause where I shall first begin and both neglect. What if this cursed hand were thicker than itself with brother's blood. Is there not rain enough in the sweet heavens to wash it white as snow? Claudius could not bring himself to pray because of the shame of guilt. He had committed the primal eldest curse that is the same sin as Cain, the murder of a brother. And he asks, what if the hand that killed my brother is more blood guilt than hand. What if there's more blood on my hand from my brother than there is 
of my own skin and bones. Have you ever felt paralyzed by the guilt of your sin like this? Paralyzed by shame, Unevil, uneven, unable even to pray. What's the cure? Well, I can tell you most assuredly that the cure is not to look inward. It's not to go introspective. You keep looking inward and you will only find more reasons for more shame. The cure for this kind of paralyzing fear is not to search for how precious you are. It is to behold how precious Christ is. And what an unfathomable grace he has shown you by being reconciled to you. To be reminded that Christ was not compelled to lay his life down for you by your beauty. You had none. It is not our intrinsic worth that is seen in the gospel as if God simply could not be happy until we were all restored to him in salvation. No, friends. It is exactly the opposite. It's not that Christ was compelled to pay such a great price because we were so worthy, but rather that we are now made worthy because of the infinite price he paid to purchase us. I'm convinced that we all too seldom think rightly of our justification. Paul wrote this passage because he thinks that word should conjure up within us mind-blowing gratitude, worship, thanksgiving, adoration, but often it doesn't. Often we can say the truth, in Christ I am justified, with cold, unaffected hearts. I'd like to conclude by sharing with you a journal entry from two years ago when the Lord met me with a particularly fresh awareness of the depth of my sin and the deeper grace of Christ as I read through this passage, Romans 4 and 5. Now, it's a bit lengthy, and I deliberated a lot about whether or not to share this with you. It's kind of awkward for me. But I decided that rather than trying to get you to feel a certain way about your sin and Christ's grace, I think it would be beneficial for me to simply share with you a moment in which the Lord drove this point home in my own heart and to sort of invite you into that moment with me. So this is what I wrote in this journal entry. The scriptures are the words of life. They are living and powerful, and through them, the Lord Jesus speaks to his own. My Jesus, you have this very morning met with me. These are your words always, and never do they return to you void of accomplishing your purposes, and yet there are times, sweet graces, merciful moments when you brush aside the clouds and the layers of firmament to draw us upwards. Time when you grace us with a dearth of distractions, where we look down at our feet and our blurred vision sharpens, the grace in which we stand becomes less vague and the texture of that heavenly foundation comes into focus. Today, you have done this for me. With items on my to-do list piling up, the Spirit of God prompts me to slow down. What he invites me into is not an item on a list. He invites me into sweet fellowship. As I write my prayer, Lord, please commune with me this morning. I believed that I was seeking you, but oh, sweet providence, you were drawing and wooing me. Come and sit with me for a while. You were whispering to my soul through your spirit. Slow down 
and spend time with me. Let me unburden you. Let me show you glimpses of glory. And so you did. As I sat beside you, you placed your hand around my arm and showed me the vistas of your grace through Romans 4 and 5. My father, who has life in himself unbounded, gives life to the dead and calls into existence that which does not exist, you said. That was you, my friend, my little brother. The life you have received, you have received from the bottomless well of the divine. Amazed, I read on. As I considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, so also did I consider the barrenness of my heart, my vacuous heart completely unable to produce anything but death. This is true, you seem to speak to me. But notice where the emphasis lies. The barrenness of Sarah's womb and the deadness of Abraham's flesh did not minimize Abraham's faith because his faith had nothing to do with his own fittingness. His confidence in grace rose with direct proportion to the shrinking of his confidence in nature. Be the son of Abraham you are. Consider not the barrenness of your heart a problem for what I and my father and our spirit can do. Comforted, I read still, and you showed me yet more staggering displays of kindness. Through me, you seem to say, you have obtained access by faith into grace, but this is no hypothetical grace. Look down at your feet, little brother. Do you see it? This is my grace. You are standing in it. And this is what it looks like and feels like. The ground is sturdy and you are fixed right here. Since you have been justified by faith, you have peace with God through me. I nod, lump forming in my throat and continue to read. Oh Jesus, how you overwhelm me with your goodness. No sooner do I feel the warmth of heart at the knowledge of where I stand, do you point out from whence that warmth comes. There is compassion in your eyes when you speak, but of course, I'm seeing nothing physically. These words are my groping for metaphor and analogy to approximate incommunicable and ineffable spiritual fellowship. But with those beautiful eyes, compassionate eyes locked on me, locking me, keeping me in place and spellbound, you point out that the warmth I feel is the warmth of the Trinity. You point out that my heart is no longer barren because it has been filled with the Holy Spirit, God's very own love and your love, dear Jesus. He who is your love for your father and your father's love for me has been poured into my heart. I'm left breathless, speechless, panting under the heavy weight of this truth. Divine love, infinite, omnipotent, immutable, boundless eternal love has been poured into my heart. He is the one who drew me to sit and be still in your presence, Lord Jesus. He is the one who has given me ears to hear your heart beating for me. He is the one who has been warming my heart affectionately to value that which you have been showing me. And as my face is hot with tears of joy, I feel your hand as it were grasp my shoulder a bit more firmly. Now, you say to my soul, now that you know where you are, now that you see where you're standing, let me show you where you came from. Let me tell you of just how much you have been forgiven. Oh, my soul, don't shrink back from looking. See that your Savior is with you. He has you. Peer over the edge of the heavenly mountain that you stand upon and glance down at the valleys from whence you were rescued. And don't be afraid. 
your Jesus will not let you fall. Still weak and ungodly, these words pierce my heart. I was not a righteous person. I was not a good person. In no way is anyone's death for mine fitting, let alone your death, precious Jesus. Still sinners. Words like an anchor tied to my neck, I droop in your arms. I was a sinner. I was an unrighteous person. My heart was jet black with sin. I was unable to utter anything but bile. This I know not with not the slightest doubt, for I still walk around with the same skin and bone, the same sin allures, the same bile dribbles out of my lips. The old crucified man stubbornly tries to mimic resurrection. Oh, my sin. From this mountaintop, Lord Jesus, you show me a little of the depth of my sin. With your hand on me, you gently remind me, you have not been saved from little. You have been saved from much. This, little brother, is a glimpse of your sin's depth. You have not yet even seen the bottom of that chasm, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. What happened next? Where was I? Was I removing my glasses, drooping my head on my desk and weeping in an office in North Kansas City on a rainy July morning? Yes, and so much more. I was collapsing into the chest of my savior. I was sobbing into his heavenly embrace. Thank you rang out into my hands here and into your bosom there, Lord Jesus. Thank you through sobs. All I can utter are thank you, but as soon as I say the words, I blush. They just aren't enough. So I look around for more words, but still all I can find are thank you. I thought this celestial mountaintop was high, but oh, how infinitely more so. Christian, all these things and more are yours in Christ. They're true of you. There's nothing to do. They're, they're just simply true if you're in Christ. Isn't that amazing? That's all. Our triune God did not wait for you to even realize your sin before acting on your behalf. God did not stand afar off, aloof with his arms crossed, waiting for you, tapping his toe, waiting for you to work up the courage to come into his presence. He didn't say, it's about time. That's not what he said. No, Christ came to you at your lowest and he positively transformed you from an enemy into a friend. The Father's overflowing, gushing love for you he displayed when he sent the son to win your reconciliation with his life and purchase your reconciliation with his death, all while you were breathing out venom and hatred and rebellion towards him. His overflowing and gushing love for you is now poured into your hearts through the Holy Spirit who comforts you even now with the words that he inspired for this very purpose. And so be comforted. Brothers and sisters, those of you who are united to Christ by faith as he applies his comforting work through these words that I happily utter to you now. If you are in Christ Jesus, you are forgiven and loved and righteous. And if there are any non-Christians here, I'm, I'm not going, like I said, I don't know most of you here, so I'm not going to presume that every single person here is a believer. If there are any non-Christians who are sort of outside looking in right now, 
I'm glad that you're here. And I want you to know that all these things and more are offered to you now in Christ. The good news is that you cannot come to him on your own terms. That's the good news. Why is that good news? Why is it good news that you can't come to Christ on your own terms? Well, I know it doesn't sound like good news, but here's why it is. If your reconciliation were on your own terms, you would likely hatch up some sort of elaborate plan of give and take that you yourself would ultimately fall short of, and then you would sort of lowball the benefits that Christ would give you. So you'd say, let's make a deal, God. Let's try to make this valuable for you and for me. But here are the terms and conditions of your reconciliation with Christ on his terms. You offer nothing but your need. You aren't allowed to bring anything but your lack. This is the offer. Take it or leave it. If you come, if you come to the table with anything, offers off the table. You come with nothing but your need, nothing but your lack. You come with nothing, and in him, you receive everything. You come to him with the empty hands of faith, and he fills them with his heavenly riches. He takes your old self, the self that you would be embarrassed for anyone to know about, and he's not put off by it in the least. He's not disgusted by it. He's not repulsed by it. Instead, he takes that you in himself, and he nails it to the cross, and then he buries it in the grave, and then he resurrects you in himself to walk in newness of life. He makes you more human than you thought possible. He receives you and he remakes you. Friends, you can get in on all of these promises. Does that sound good to you? Won't you accept Jesus's invitation this morning? Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. That's the invitation if you're a non-believer. Please pray with me. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the word justification. I pray that it awakens gratitude and thanksgiving. I pray that you would prevent us from hearing that word justification with cold and indifferent hearts. Let us be blown away that while we were still weak, you, Christ Jesus, died for the ungodly. Help us to be grateful. Lord, I pray for any who are here today who are not in your sheepfold, who are not believers. I pray that you would use this word to both convict them of their sin and entice them into the joy that is offered in Christ. We pray that you continue to build this church for your glory. We ask all of these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.